Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. What antiques are we talking about this week? This is actually a listener request via email from our friend Henry, who had actually sent us a picture and asked if we had any more information on Chinese puzzle teapots. Oh, hell yes. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. So yeah, of course I'm going to look into it. And it unleashed a whole world of puzzle vessels. I do love me some puzzle vessels. I actually did not know about, I would say, 95% of them. Really? I knew about the Pythagoras cup. Oh, hell yeah. And that is it. I just found out about puzzle jugs and puzzle pints, like while I was doing this research, which I think we're gonna have to make their own episode. So look forward to that. Uh, Because they have a rich history in the Delft region. Delft. When you're here, you're family. Yeah. The Netherlands are kind of like Olive Garden. Is that not the aesthetic Olive Garden was going for? I'm pretty sure they were going for Italy. Sounds fake, but okay. Now, if you want to figure out what aesthetic the Chase Cake Factory is going for, now you'll have a mystery on your hands. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) As best as I can say, it's country chic Egyptian princess. So the Chinese puzzle teapot is also called a Katogan teapot or a puzzle pot or a peach pot or a Dao Guan Hu which is also called the upside-down filling wine pot. All right, I'm intrigued. The Chinese puzzle teapot is a teapot that has no lid and one spout located low on the teapot. But how water get in, Ken? How water get in? Why, it was filled from the bottom (gasps) and mysteriously held the liquid when righted. What? Now, this is witchcraft. I mean, obviously. So, unfortunately, Henry, we do have to report you to the Witchfinder General. We have to do that disturbingly often. Yeah, well, this is witches be about. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> we're in New England. We knew this was going to be a problem <laughs> when we were born here. <laughs> so, <laughs> as the previous name suggests, these were actually originally wine pots, although they have a much longer history that we'll get into shortly. The secret to the Cadigan or Puzzle Pot is that the base has a hole with an interior cone-shaped tube running from it to near the inside of the top so that it could be filled through the base, turned on its side, and then turned the right way up without the contents spilling. So I saw a couple of people refer to it as a popular myth, but they were the only ones calling it that. But I wanted to cite it here anyway because I thought it was very funny that the myth suggested that the pots were created as non-spill teapots for the railway, which, given that they had their roots in Song Dynasty China, seems like a blatant lie. I mean... Yeah, it's a little um, difficult to make that timeline fit together. (laughs) And they continue to work by the liquid that gets poured into the top when the vessel is inverted, pools to the bottom, and the liquid doesn't rise higher than the top of the funnel opening. That's important, otherwise it'll just come right out. The spouts are located very low so that they won't overflow and leak anyway. Generally, they're very small. Classically, they only hold about a cup of water. But it's a puzzling cup. It's a puzzling pot. Although the Victorians, God bless them, they made big ones. Of course. No one knows why exactly, because the one thing about these teapots that you may have gleaned from the description of how they work on the interior is that they're not very good for brewing tea. No. Most of the time, they were actually just used for the hot water used in the brewing process for other hot drinks, because that was the only kind of sanitary way to keep them. Yeah. Because no dishwashers, so scrubbing that out by hand... Bit of a nightmare. Bit of a nightmare. And especially considering that the Victorians were using this largely as a curiosity. I tried to get into the history of these things, and it was a lot harder than I expected it to be. Because they're cool, and they're very interesting, and they have like a sort of clear line of trade from China to England. But it turns out nobody bothered looking into it past that. But I found out that this actually probably originated from India. 
from a vessel called the Kundika, whose design moved to Lombok, Indonesia as the Kendi Maling, or the Thief's Kendi. That was the first instance of a bottom-filling lidless pot. I mention it because the suggested use was that it was used by kings, and the design of filling the water from the bottom meant that you couldn't poison the water from the top. Aho! There was no lid, so you couldn't wait till the king turned his back, lift the lid, and throw poison in there. No, no. Unpoisonable pot, this. <laughs> Quick aside, I do love how any particularly clever contraption predating the 19th century is invariably called the thieves whatever. The thieves, yeah. I <laughs> I tried so hard to figure out why it's a thief's thing. Because you're not steal like, it doesn't steal. You're not stealing thing. Because thieves are a dex-based class. Wow. You gotta be tricksy and go with your fingers. <laughs> you gotta be good at puzzles. Yeah. So from Indonesia, the design for this would kind of spread across East Asia, becoming very popular in, as I mentioned before, the Northern Song Dynasty, which is about 960 AD. At the time, those were used as wine ewers. I couldn't find any general consensus on why they continued to use the bottom-filling lidless design. My assumption is just because it's extremely cool. I mean, yeah. Like, it's a fun engineering thing, and that's the way I would keep my wine. It's fun. It's dope as hell. Once you master that, why would you ever use anything else? Yeah. I mean, if anyone has, like, any other reason, I actually did see the dreaded it was for ritual, but I couldn't argue that on the particular example they gave because there was, like, literally religious figures incised on them, so... That was probably the case that time, yeah. The one time it was actually- The one time they were, they had like irrefutable proof that it was a ritual thing. <laughs> now, the Cadogan teapot made its way and became a teapot on its way to Europe through famously, supposedly, and almost mythically by the Lord Cadogan, Earl of Cadogan in Chelsea, England. Ah, uh, yes. Or his wife. It's unclear who was doing it. Somebody was. One of the Cadogans was way into importing Chinese pottery. And supposedly one of them fell in love with the bottom-filling wine ewers that they were importing and busted them out at every dinner party. I mean, I would do the same. It's extremely cool, yeah. <laughs> One interesting fact is that the ones that Lord Cadogan or Lord Cadogan's wife, Lady Cadogan, had were specifically a peach-shaped wine ewer. Because they didn't have to have lids to fill from the top, you got away with making a lot of like really more interesting, elaborate designs. And one of the most popular ones was just making that thing look like a whole peach, which is very pretty. They were right. Just a whole peach. But, you know, since a lot of the England copycats were not particularly creative, a lot of the teapots also ended up having the peach shape, despite no longer having the peach color. Now, Dee, would you call these peachy keen? <laughs> I would kill you. If it were not for the laws of this country, I would have cut you down where you stand. <laughs> Can't poison me, though. I can't poison you. T-Bot fills from the bottom. You got that stupid upside down vessel. I'm never going to get to you. <laughs> I would say they're peachy keen. Yay. <laughs> so supposedly as the effect of being everyone at Lord Cadogan's cool rockin' peach wine ewer parties... The design started to spread in popularity and was famously copied by Rockingham Pottery, a pottery known for their high-quality wares and a distinct brown, shiny glaze, from the late 1700s to the early 1800s. In fact, there are examples of the Rockingham factory having produced them in 1780. 
While they were messing around with a lot of teapot designs, and boy howdy, some of the surviving examples are not good teapots. No? <laughs> no. It turns out the design of the teapot that we have is kind of the good one. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, like, it works, and there's, like, you know, sayings about not messing with things that are, like, perfectly good and work. If it's not Baroque, it's Rococo? That- what? <laughs> well, because <laughs> if it's not Baroque, don't fix it, but if it's not Baroque- but you thought it was Baroque, it was probably actually Rococo because there is a great deal of superficial similarity between the two styles. Wow. Wow, Ken. <laughs> For more on the difference between Baroque and Rococo, I don't know, look it up. We're not going to get into it today. Watch Disney's 1992 masterpiece, Beauty and the Beast. They don't actually explain it in that, though. No, but it's pretty. The difference is biomorphic. Biomorphic sculptural inclusions in the sculpture. Oh, I thought the difference was the color palette. It's that too. But for me, what I walked away with most strongly was the biomorphic forms that don't carry over into Rococo. Huh. That might be more architectural than just sculptural. So, like, I could be completely off base. I could be talking out of my architecture-loving ass. Meanwhile, I'm over here in Furniture Land being like, wow, that <laughs> so pretty. Yeah, to be fair, in furniture, the differences are, you know, less pronounced. If it's been spray-painted rose gold, it's Rococo. <laughs> If it's been if it's been tufted in the brightest velvet red you could imagine, that's Rococo. <laughs> so, of course, this extremely whimsical, fun party trick design was really popular. Wow, can you guess when? During the Victorian era? It was very popular during the Victorian era. Because of their love of sickening whimsy? It was kind of like this crazy two-part phase where it was sickening whimsy and chinoiserie. Oh, no. You know, they're going through these phases of like mass importing Chinese goods. And it's crazy cool and whimsical. So like, bam, bam, you've done it. You've done it, you have. They make it bigger so that they can actually use it to brew tea and coffee in different vessels because please do not do it inside them. They're hard to clean. Because again, Victorians did not yet have electric dishwashers. And many times they come up with, let's call them questionable designs for the teapots. Uh-huh. One of the worst ones I saw was brown with a red spot on top and a squirrel finial, but it was still peach-shaped. Huh. I didn't like it. Squirrel and the giant peach. Some other more charming examples included portraitures of Welsh ladies in traditional Welsh attire. Which I was curious about because when I looked up Lord Cadigan, the name is Welsh in origin. So I'm wondering if that was like a callback to the the fabled originator of the popularity of the teapot. Probably. Very fun. The crazy thing is from Victorian era, these teapots spread everywhere, all over the world. In the late 1890s, there were examples coming out of Peru. Fun. And it was literally just because they were the funnest thing anyone had ever seen. Well, just look at it. The Peruvian example is so cute. It looks like a little turkey. Aww. I love figural pots. I can't get over it. Another thing that I thought was really interesting was that despite not being popular for a very long time because they have limited use, these were mass produced on such a scale that I very easily found them on bidding sites for... Maybe 100 to $200. So for once, it's affordable. I hate to say affordable about things that cost several hundred dollars, but yeah. Well, in the world of antiques. I mean, these are genuine antique fine pottery examples from a variety of world potteries. So you know, you're getting high quality China, beautiful designing, and it's genuinely antique. So at that, yeah, $150 actually isn't an insane price for a beautiful antique teapot. And I was just surprised because that's what I would expect to pay for a regular beautiful antique teapot. And on top of it, now you're getting the fun of it being a puzzle pot. But yeah, like most really, really cool things that also tend to be slightly expensive, uh, there are a lot of popular reproductions. 
One that I found the most common was a like Celadon green reproduction that was very small and had been included with a Greedy Cup or Justice Cup or Pythagorean Cup. Love it. Or the Shishi, spelt Q-I-Q-I, which was the Chinese name for this type of cup from the Qin Dynasty in 221 BCE. As I mentioned before, these are cups that can't be overfilled and have historically been used in a lot of philosophical talk about the pitfalls of being greedy. Although I found some interesting existential Taoist interpretations of what the cup represented, but the popular reproduction cup has the central funnel that makes the Pythagorean cup work look like a dragon coming out of the cup, so it's extremely baller. That does sound pretty dope. And as far as reproductions go, the ones that I found were pretty high quality. You're talking like genuinely cool souvenir kind of stuff. I would say about like 50 to $70. So nothing to sneeze at, but not antique. I would say in general for spotting reproductions, you are going to have to do a lot of research in spotting reproductions in pottery in general. And we refuse to help you on this podcast. Do it yourself, we say. No, email me. I'll do my best. Or join the group Antiques Freaks Friends. People there are extremely helpful and have a lot of interesting resources. Did you tune into this episode specifically to find out more about it? Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Go somewhere else! I can't in this oh this one episode walk you through how to identify like okay. Now here's how you identify Delft pottery reproductions. Okay, now here's how you identify fucking Rockingham pottery. It covers so much space. We've waited until 20 minutes in to tell you surprise! You learn nothing! Good day! I I waited till 20 minutes to tell you surprise, there's a lot of different kinds of teapots, my man. Ken, you're missing, you're missing the beauty of this. This is a hook to make them listen to other episodes on pottery companies. Okay. I'm generating long-term interest. Keep listening and maybe next week we'll give you the information you desire. Ken is slandering me on this podcast. <laughs> Ken is using his platform to slander me as I deliver information. <laughs> My feelings are hurt. No. No. I'm kidding. But it's a really broad topic. The best way to start is to examine the decoration, you know, how it is decorated, colored, and go from there. And then you can kind of narrow it down to either a company that had made it or a company that had tried to make it look like another company if it's not marked. If it's marked, then Bob's your uncle. There's tons of resources for archiving markings. And, you know, reach out. There's lots of antiques groups that will help you narrow down uh, mysterious pottery finds. Including us. Antiques Freaks Friends on Facebook. That's puzzles. <laughs> That's puzzles. What's the sign? That's the new sign off for the whole podcast. That's puzzles. That's puzzles. I do want to thank Henry for sending that question in and opening my eyes to the wide world of people trying to drink out of stuff with holes in it. It's crazy. I didn't know how widespread it was. <laughs> and now I just have another thing to obsess over when I'm out at flea markets looking for stuff. I'm going to be trying to spot one of these buddies. Hell yeah. Sources for today include MichaelBackmanLTD.com, Cadigan Teapots, Covells.com, Cadigan Teapot, JeanetteHarrisBlog.blogspot.com, Cadigan Teapots, PuzzleMuseum.com, which is amazing, their article on Welsh teapots, HistoryOfQueensCliff.com, Cadigan Teapot, BradfordMuseums.org, and Alice Adventure, and selections from the book Vessels of Life by Jean McKinnon that I acquired normally. 
If you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email us directly at AntiquesFreaksPodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, AntiquesFreaks.tumblr.com. If you liked listening to me talk about different kinds of teapots and how I'll never help you find out any more about them, <laughs> feel free to scroll on down to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a hearty review. Any kind of review helps get our beautiful tones into a variety of listening ears. We received a lovely review from Foises with four O's <laughs> titled, Love These, Thank You. Aww. Always a wealth of knowledge presented with humor and humanity. Aww, that's sweet. Thank you. And if you would like more Antiques Freaks in your week, you should check out our Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash antiquesfreaks, where we have been live streaming the graphic design side of creating podcast merch and interacting with folks directly in chat. It's been a hoot and also a holler. And I'm sorry, did you say new podcast merch again? I did say new podcast merch. Where can they find that? They can get that at our Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop slash antiquesfreaks, where we also offer a wide variety of vintage goods and t-shirts and stickers with the podcast logo on them, and also our Whales in Alaska line. <laughs> it's a great gift for anyone who likes whales, Alaska, and the combination of the two. Do you passionately believe there are whales in Alaska? Let everyone know. Wear a shirt. Do you know someone you want to frustrate deeply who does not believe that there are whales in Alaska? <laughs> frustrate them deeply. Wear a shirt. And if you still need more Antiques Freaks, we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesweeks, where every week we reproduce a bonus episode, where we read and review the Victorian Penny Dreadful, Varney the Vampire, or the Feast of Blood. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right. You. Au revoir. Goodbye.